You know, we've been going through the book of Joel, and the book of Joel is a book about judgment. It's a book about plagues, and uh, there's a lot of uh, the sun turns dark, the moon turns to blood. I mean, it's very apocalyptic, and it's distressing. And uh, it's very difficult to, not only to hear these kinds of sermons, but it's difficult to actually preach them, because they seem so... uh, weighty and dark, they're kind of pressed down on us. They press down on me when I'm preparing them, and I know that they can become maybe a little bit discouraging. Uh, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, who many of you know, says this about when, whenever you hear a sermon about God's judgment and all of the threats and all of the, uh, the imagery that goes along with it, uh, Dr. Ferguson says this, soar though they be God's judgments, sore though they be, listen, God would have you soar rather than have you lost. You see, God's purpose in distressing us, in disturbing us with these thoughts and sermons and books, whole books devoted to His judgment and His wrath, is to call us to repentance. Not to, not to say, oh, look at how bad the world is, but to look inside ourselves. Say, look at me. I deserve God's judgment. I am the one. I'm the man. The darkness and the sin exists in my heart. And I have a loving Heavenly Father who means to drive that darkness out of my soul so that I can indeed worship Him in spirit and in truth. So sore though they be, God would have you soar rather than have you lost. So let's read this final chapter in the book of Joel. Then we're going to take a little break from this for a few weeks and then we'll come into something new. But this is the last sermon in this series. If you have your Bibles, open them to Joel chapter 3. And if you don't, there's a, a bulletin insert that has the passage. It's 21 verses. So listen, I'm going to read the whole thing. Be patient and try not to lose your concentration. Follow along if you can. That will help you stay in the text. And now hear God's Word. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people, my heritage, Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people. And they have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Zidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir up from the place to which you have sold them and I will return your payment on your head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation 
far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the Gentiles, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come up all you surrounding nations and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there... I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon is darkened, the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people. A stronghold to the people of God. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. The hills shall flow with milk, and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. And the water from the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation. And Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood Blood I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to look at four things very quickly this morning and conclude our look at the book of Joel. And if you have questions, I hope that uh, you'll come afterwards. Uh, Maybe we can have a little informal uh, Q&A after the service for a few minutes if you have some questions. But we're going to look at four things this morning. First of all, we're going to look at God's people. Secondly, God's judgment. Third, God's challenge. And finally, God's presence. So God's people... His judgment, His challenge, and His presence. Look at verses 1-3. through He's talking about God's people and, and His disposition towards those people. In those days, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. What he's saying is, and he talks later on, he talks about my people, my heritage Israel, my people. He has identified His people, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, as His own. He's saying they're mine. And if you've read the history of Israel, you know that at the time that God is declaring this is when Israel and and Judah were the most evil. They had committed horrendous acts, some of which cannot even be mentioned in church, although they're mentioned in the Bible. I wouldn't dare mention them in church because it would offend you down to your bones. They were horrific 
things that these people do. And in the midst of this, God declares them My people. My heritage. He said it's not dependent on them. It's dependent on Me. My faithfulness is at what is at the end of the day that will define people. My faithfulness will define people. Not our faithfulness. And Joel was telling these people who were in exile and who were suffering under uh, the plague of locusts and who were distributed all over the world through, uh, through these horrors that had been committed by the Edomites and the uh, Philistines and the, the, the people from Tyre and Sidon. All of the horrific uh, things that these people had committed against Judah and scattered them all over the world. God says, I'm going to bring them back and I'm going to restore them. Not for merit, not for what they had done, but because of who I am. I am the God who loves His people. God reveals Himself in the book of Joel as, listen carefully folks, because this is very hard for us to get our heads around. He defines Himself as a jealous father and a just judge. A jealous father and a just judge. He tells the nations of the world, you cannot degrade My people. Now I want you to, don't think ethnically right now, it's just Jewish people that He loves, or it's just Israelites that He loves. No, He loves His people, whether they're from West Texas, which is a nation all in, of its own. Yeah, amen, right? Yeah, there you go. Say that. <laughs> Preach it, brother. Yeah, or people from the Midwest, or people from the United States of America, or people from Israel, or people from Iran, or Iraq, or Syria, or Lebanon, or Russia. All of the traditional enemies of the world, God is saying, I'm going to choose a people from these enemies, and they're going to be My people defined by Me. Not by their bloodline, not by their ethnicity, but by Me. And to degrade them is to degrade me. Jesus said, Lord, Jesus was telling people, this is what, how you've got to look at the world. Jesus was redefining the way we look at the world. And he was saying, you have got to treat people based on my nature, not necessarily on your nature. You have to treat people the way I would treat them. And so Jesus, talking to a multitude of people and explaining to them how God would deal with the nations at the end of days, Jesus said this, there are going to be people coming up to me and saying this. Listen, this is hard. You think Jesus was sweet and mild? He was rough. He was as rough as Joel, as rough as Jeremiah, as rough as Amos. He spoke the truth in love because he wanted to wake people up. Wake up, you drunkards. Remember from Joel chapter 1. Wake up out of your stupor. And Jesus said this, the people come to Him in judgment. They're going to sit in His judgment. And they say this to the Lord. Lord, when did we see You hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, or in present? And Jesus said this, as You did not do it to the least of these, My brothers, You did not do it to Me. Do you see how God throughout the Bible, He identifies Himself with His people. 
And His people, unless you haven't been reading your Bible or you just don't know anything about anything, His people are us. And if you know anything about yourself, you know you are not worthy. Yes? You're not worthy to receive God's love. Who in this room can stand up and say, I have done enough so that God must accept me on my own terms? Even pagans that don't believe in God know that there's something wrong inside and they try through every means possible to make themselves right before God. Even the atheists know that they have to do right and wrong. And when you ask an atheist, where do you get your moral uh, criteria from? They say, well, I make it up myself. Well, then you're God. Do you see? Then you're just God yourself. You're deciding what's right and wrong, what's good and bad. But as Christians, we have been given a book that tells us what's good and bad. And so we are obliged, whether we like it or not, to obey God. And we don't. We fail. And so God says to us, I still love you. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Don't put on an outward show. I want you to be broken inside. I want you to recognize you. Don't point at the brother over there or the sister over there who has a little speck of dust in their eye and say, you've got to remove the speck of dust in your eye. No, he says, look to yourself. Look at the log, the beam that's in your own eye. Then remove the beam. Then you'll be able to see clearly to help your poor brother remove the tiny speck from his eye. What a genius our Savior was. How do we treat God's people? Even in the church. You know, one of the things that kills pastors is being betrayed, not by the outside world, but by their own congregation. Now that's never happened here at Christ the King. You are wonderful people. And I'm a wonderful pastor. And so there's no wonder... (laughs) I'm kidding... No, people get hurt in churches. We wound each other. And I'll tell you what, we don't have one thing to say to the world. Shut your mouth. Don't you dare go out into the world and say to the world, you need to clean up homosexuality and you need to clean up this and you need to clean up, uh, you know, we need to have prayer in school. We need to do this and that. We're preaching to the world, but we have yet to look to our own house. Yes? Amen? No? Okay, then you're not listening to Joel. Forget me. Listen to the prophet. Look to yourselves. How do we treat the world around us? How do we treat one another? With love and tolerance and and expressions of grace? Or do we hold everyone's feet to the fire with such intense scrutiny that if they make a mistake, the last place in the world they feel safe to go is to church and say, I have made a mistake, I have sinned. They wouldn't dare do it here. Because it's not safe. And I want Christ the King to be a safe place. Do you? I want it to be a safe place. If you see somebody come in the door and they're all covered with bones in their noses and they're crazy out of their mind, look at them and see a reflection of yourself. But for the grace of God, there go I. We rarely are willing to look in the mirror and see the dark in our own hearts. 
And I'm saying along with Joel, I'm in good company here, folks. Don't get mad at me. Joel's saying, how do you treat God's people? How do you look at those around you? Especially the ones that are hard to get along with. Not like me, I'm easy to get along with. You guys, we need to get you all some coffee this morning. Wake up. All right. What about the degradation of children? He specifically says that the offenses of the nations are so horrific that what they did was they traded, they, they took the Jewish children and they were so worthless. They were dogs in the eyes of these surrounding nations. They were nothing. They were less than nothing. They were like, like the, the German, the Third Reich defined them in World War II in the pre, those years in the 30s. They were vermin. And so they would take them. I'm not going to waste my money on a prostitute. I'll just take this little Jewish girl and I'll trade her. I'll take this little Jewish boy who's just vermin. He's, I'm not going to waste the money in my pocket. It's much more valuable than this little boy. I'll just give him for a glass of wine. The degradation of children. And I don't have to say too much about this because... Our country has degraded children. 50 million are dead today because of abortion. To say nothing of all the other stuff, we do not value children in the West. Thankfully, in our church, we do. We got church families with big families. Seven Pharisees have seven. Uh, Gary and Mary have seven. Uh, many of you have multiple, multiple. God bless you. But how many people? in our country today, do not value children. And God is saying this is the basis for my judgment. How you treat each other and how you look at children. And my wrath is burning hot. Some years ago, probably 25, maybe more, I've told you this before, Dr. R.C. Sproul was, had written a book about abortion and he was on a major Christian network somewhere back in the East and they were interviewing Dr. Sproul about abortion and, 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 and how our country needs to start rethinking its, its positions on these very difficult issues. And, the, and the, the interviewer said to Dr. Sproul, well, Dr. Sproul, don't you think that if we invoke... Second uh, Chronicles 7, and when my people who are called by my name, if they'll cry out, can't we, can't we pray and ask God to forgive us for this? And Dr. Sproul, in his, in his gravelly voice, he leaned across, I'll never forget, I heard the interview. He leaned across and looked at the interview and he said, too late! And the guy said, you mean God won't forgive us? Sproul said, too late. Judgment is going to fall. And if you think the United States of America is going to be exempt, folks, you're just living in fairyland. You live in Disneyland. Judgment is going to come on this earth to every nation. And every nation is going to be called into the valley of Jehoshaphat. The valley of judgment. Jehoshaphat is Jehovah Judges in Hebrew. And these nations are going to be called. We're going to be among them. And He's going to set us all up and then he's going to move to his judgment. Look at verse 4 through 8. What are you to me, 
O Tyre, Sidon, and Philistia, are you paying me back for something? Have I done something to you that you would treat me this way, that you would treat my people? You see, he so identifies himself with those people that it was as if they were doing it to him. And he hasn't changed, folks. He hasn't changed. He still looks at this this way. He so identifies with you and I in our pain and in our sorrows and in our distresses and our fears and our despairs. He so identifies with you and me that it's as if it's him. He does not separate, oh, poor Chuck. Poor Chuck had cancer. Poor Chuck suffered. Poor Chuck. No, he says, poor me. I suffer. Those of you that are parents know that your happiness is only going to reach the level of your most unhappy child. Yes? I don't care how many children. You, you could have seven children and all of your children be happy and one of them be in distress. Where is your heart? Where is it? It's with that one child. And your joy, your joy struggles to rise above the sorrow of that one. And that's how God looks at us. And He, he, he proclaims this judgment in 4-8. through eight. You've taken my riches, He said, my, my, my silver and my gold, which many commentators believe is an allusion to God's people, not the actual goblets and the accoutrements of the temple that were, that were in fact gold. Yes, they stole those and they took them into their temples. But the allusion is, you've taken what is really precious to me. You've taken my people. And you've wounded them and hurt them. Behold, he says, I'll stir them up to come back and to judge you. They will be the final judgments. This whole section, 4 through 8, is framed like a lawsuit. In fact, this third chapter is literally, it is pure genius. I think the whole book of Joel is pure genius. But this particular chapter, he starts out talking about his people. He moves to a lawsuit. Then he challenges them in the lawsuit. And then he talks about his presence, the ultimate restoration, which we're going to look at in just a moment. He frames this section as a lawsuit and he asks them rhetorical questions. You see, he knows the answer to the question. Those of you that uh, either have, or maybe there's some lawyers, I don't know if there's any lawyers in our church today, but if, you have, if you're a lawyer, you know that one of, the, one of the basic things you're taught in law school, I think it's Law School 101, is never ask a question that you do not have what? The answer, you never ask because you don't want to get caught off guard, do you? You don't want to ask a question and they say the answer and you thought, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. No, of course you never ask a question that you don't know the answer. That's a rhetorical question, a question that the answer is implied in the question or already known. It's common knowledge. So he asks a rhetorical, what have I done to you? Look, in Romans chapter 1, God is saying that same thing. What have I done to you? The heavens declare the glory of God. Can't you look up and see the heavens? What's wrong with you? You don't know to give thanks to this Creator? I mean, you don't need to know anything about Jesus, but can't you at least give thanks? And humankind has from day one not given thanks. Adam and Eve did not give thanks. They betrayed their God. And folks, we've been doing it ever since. Don't blame them. If you don't like what Adam and Eve did, then quit sinning right now. Don't ever sin again. Okay? All right, you can go now. That's a joke. 
All right. What he's saying is that his judgment, God's judgment, is not going to be uh, disproportionate. In fact, what he's describing here is what is called the principle of proportionate punishment. Let the punishment fit the crime. In other words, the punishment that God is going to exact on the nations is going to perfectly match their crime. He's not going to over-punish them. He's not going to do to them more than they deserve. But He's not going to do anything less than what they deserve. His judgments always perfectly match the crime. Unlike everybody else. We generally, what do we generally do when we're going to pay somebody back? What is the general... What do we do? Well, I I won't speak for anybody but myself. I make them pay twice. Right? I mean, those of you that are married, you know if your spouse offends you, you don't just offend them back in kind. What do you do? You double down, don't you? Or is it only me? Am I here alone? I'm leaving. I'll see you later. You all have a good day. (laughs) it is only me right no it it, look we double down we barely we always want to give back what we got plus some with interest this is the way of mankind it's where blood feuds come from i mean all that stuff that we read about this tribal wars nation war we want to pay back it's rare it is rare to find a country like the united states of america which is an aberration that will go to war, and we've been doing it for centuries, as long as we've been in existence, we go to war, we obliterate our enemy, and then we extend the right hand of fellowship and we rebuild them. Name me one country that does that. That's something to be proud of, yes? A country that defeats its enemies and then rebuilds its country to where the, the economy of Germany is strong, the economy of Japan is strong. Because we rebuild. We don't destroy and then leave them and sell their children for a glass of wine. And by God, we could, with our power and our might and our miller, we could conquer, we could make the world a, a, a radioactive parking lot. Yes? We could make them bow. But this nation has been graciously informed by Christianity and and, and the ethics of Christianity. And so for, at least in our recent history, we have rebuilt the nations we've conquered. Now what we do in the future will depend on our leaders. And God help us. God help us. But for us, for us as Christians... We are to look at the world around us and identify ourselves with them. God's judgment, justice perfectly fits the crime. But we don't like to talk about God. I spent, Friday I spent an hour talking to, to uh, a therapist that I'm seeing and he wanted to know all about the Presbyterian church and all about our stuff. And, and, I, and I just tried to talk about the gospel. And so I, I spent an hour talking about the gospel with him while he was working on me and trying to fix my my problems, and uh, uh, I told him, you know, we don't, we, we love to talk about God's love, but we hate talking about His judgment and His, 
His wrath, don't we? Don't you all get a little uncomfortable? Isn't it like Ferguson said? Isn't it kind of sore? I don't, I don't particularly like talking about it. I'd much rather talk about lovey-dovey stuff and all this, you know, cushioned sparkles and, you know, rainbows and unicorns and all that fun stuff. That's all in your Bible, by the way. Talking about God's judgment because we don't, in the, particularly in the West, folks, we recoil something about it. And I think it's all human beings, but especially us in America. We recoil at the idea of God's judgment. How dare He judge us? Who does He think He is to judge me? After all, I own myself. I am my own boss. I determine for myself what is right and wrong. I make the rules. And I, as an enlightened 21st century person, a Western person, I know enough that I can sit in judgment of God. I can put Him, as C.S. Lewis said, I can take God and put Him in the dock of the court and I can pronounce judgment on Him because I'm so enlightened and I'm so wise and I know what's right and wrong and all these Ten Commandments and these rules and this and that. Why should I follow any of those? I mean, come on, after all, we're enlightened people. We know more than God. I have a right to do whatever I please to define what is right and wrong only until somebody breaks into your house. Then we all agree what's right and wrong. Or when somebody abuses one of your children, or kills somebody you love, or takes someone, uh, someone that you care about, one of your children, and robs them and steals them and you never see them again. What would we want to do then when we catch the offender? What would you want to do then? There you go. Kill them. My grandmother, my dad's mom, said we should put them in a closet and cut a piece off every day. I didn't like that. Isn't that great? That was my grandmother. You see how, why we were all such good kids? Oh my God. <laughs> I'm going to put them in a closet and cut a piece off every day. And yet this same woman, when we flew home after September 11th, you know that you couldn't fly for I don't know how many weeks. When they finally opened it, we got on an airplane, flew home, made sure everybody's okay and we're going to be home. I came into her house. She was sitting alone in the den looking at the television, watching the news reports, and what was on the television was, a, was another, a thousandth time, the Twin Towers falling. And she turned to me with tears in her eyes. and She said, Chuck, I've lived too long. You see, inside of us, folks, we want vengeance. We want to cut a piece off every day. But inside of us, there's also that part that says, this is not, I couldn't, if I had all the power in the world, I could not address an evil like this. September 11th. Or the multitude of things that you see on the news. Now, listen, they have doubled and tripled and quadrupled down. And there's more evil today. You look on it in the news. We're over here in the West. We're safe. We're kind of protected. But it's still happening. And it's distressing beyond belief. And we don't know what to do. We say, well, maybe we should cut a piece off every day. But even that won't fix the problem, will it? It won't address the issue. But we know that justice has to be done. We know somebody has got to judge. And for us as Christians, our hope is in God's judgment. 
That's where your hope ultimately lies, folks, is in God's judgment. And so look at verses 9 through 16. It's a long section, but it's a poem. It's, it's very poetic, and I don't want to spend a lot of time with it, but he says, proclaim this, consecrate for war. In other words, he's challenging, he's speaking to the nations. And he, do, he spoke to the ancient nations at that time, but he's also speaking to our contemporary world. He's challenging us like I talked about last week. He's saying, you know what? Put me under scrutiny. Fine, you're judging me. Fine, but let's see where it all comes out. Let's see how it all comes out. And he says to them, beat your plowshares into weapons and your pruning hooks into weapons. And in fact, Joel actually reaches back to an older prophet, Isaiah and Micah, who said, beat your plowshares or beat your weapons into plowshares and pruning hooks. Because a time of peace is going to be. So take the weapons of war, and instead of keeping weapons of war, melt them down and make them into weapons of peace, like plowshares and pruning hooks, so that we can build a verdant world, a world that is like the Garden of Eden. And Joel, ironically and with dripping sarcasm, he turns that old prophecy on its head and he says, no, 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 don't do that. Take your plowshares and your pruning shooks and make them weapons and come fight me. Let's see. Hasten, you warriors, you who think you're tough, you're strong, you're powerful. Come to me. Meet me in the valley of judgment and we'll see. Multitudes. He says multitudes. poetic. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The valley of Jehoshaphat. And all of you have heard those sermons. I... Thankfully, you won't hear that kind of sermon here, but I've been in churches where the valley of decision was the place where God brings you so that you can decide whether or not to accept Jesus into your heart. That God brings you into the valley of decision and it's your decision to make. Will you follow Him or will you not follow Him? And that's not what this text is saying. What this text is saying, you come into the valley of decision And I'll decide over you. I'll pronounce judgment over you. You think you're so great. You think you're so strong. Come and meet me for a fight. And let's see who wins that fight. He mocks them. He taunts them. He uses dripping sarcasm. And in 12 through 16, he pronounces judgment on them and he pronounces salvation for his people. The Valley of Decision, folks, listen carefully. This is a Presbyterian church, and so I'm going to be uh, very Presbyterian with you. Don't ever think that you make decisions about God. At the end of the day, He makes His decisions about us. And when that reality that He is making decisions about you, when that falls into your heart, when that goes down into the center of your being, it's going to do one of two things. Listen carefully. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It'll do one of two things. It will either break your heart or it will make your heart hard as a rock. And you'll shake your fist at God and you'll say, you're not going to decide for me. You don't decide for me. You don't tell me what to do. I own myself. Or it will break your heart and you will fall down on your knees and you will beat your chest and you will say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm in the valley of decision. I'm in the valley of Jehoshaphat, in the valley of judgment. I know what I deserve. 
And so all I can do is beg for your mercy. I know the decision has already been made. The decision has been made to punish sin, to send a plague of locusts. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The fool, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. He's not talking about atheism. He's talking about the fool that says, I do not stand under God's judgment. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, he says this, and this is uh, amazing. Listen carefully. There are only two kinds of people in the end. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose. Hell. God has given His grace so that we can escape hell. But when we say no to Him, you're choosing hell. You're choosing destruction. And ironically, He gives us what we choose. He lets us, at the end of the day, make the final decision. And He gives us what we want. So let's close with this. God's presence. You know that I am the Lord who dwells in Zion. In that day the mountains shall jump. He's talking about a day that has not yet occurred. This is one of the places where He's casting His eyes into the future, folks. He's looking ahead. And He's saying in this cosmic day, the, the hills are going to drip. You see, it's again, it's poetic, it's metaphorical. The hills are going to drip with wine. The stream beds are going to run with milk and, and honey. It's going to be a beautiful, verdant world where people live in peace and where there is abundance. He's talking about a cosmic restoration, a cosmic consummation. The effects, what he's saying, remember the locust? He's saying the effects, what the locust has taken from you, I will restore. I will restore it, what the locust has taken. What do you believe about your future? Let me just say, don't, don't speak it out because there's too many of us, but think about this. What do you believe about your future? Let me suggest this. And if you listen and you actually start to live this way, it can change your life. There's not a lot of things that can change your life. This little thing I'm going to tell you right now can change your life. Listen, what you believe about your future determines how you will live now. And, perhaps even more importantly, how you will interpret your past. What you believe about the future will determine how you live in the present. And will help you interpret your past. You know, if we really want to be honest, folks, our past roars. Yes? It roars accusations of shame and guilt and failure. And we live under that burden. What do you believe about your future? What do you believe? Joel is saying, what do you believe? 
The gospel teaches us this. Listen, folks. That on the cross, Jesus Christ endured cosmic judgment. The locust plague fell on Him. The locust plague you and I deserved fell into His heart. He lost God's presence. He was forsaken on the cross. It was He... If you've read your Bible, folks, it was He that entered the valley of Jehoshaphat. Ironically, the valley of Kidron. Ironically, where the Garden of Gethsemane itself exists today. The valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of Kidron, the valley of judgment. Jesus entered that valley. And God's decision over Him in that valley of decision that God's judgment on him was, one who had never sinned, by the way, his decision on his own son was guilty. Guilty. But not for the sins that he had done, but to silence the roar, the accusations of the sins that I had done. Listen to this. Listen and let these words go down into your heart. His. His be the victor's name who fought the fight alone. Triumphant saints no honor claim. Their conquest was His own. By weakness and defeat He won the glorious crown, trod all His foes beneath His feet by being trodden down. He, hell in hell laid low, made sin His sin. He sin overthrew, bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. Bless, bless the conqueror slain, slain by divine decree, who lived, who died, who lives again. For thee, my soul. For thee. What? What? Though the vile accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them well, and thousands more. My God, He knoweth none. My sin is cast into the sea of God's forgotten memory. No more to haunt accusingly. For Christ has lived and died for me. Do you believe it? Will you believe that? It's the only way you can escape God's judgment. And I pray you will. Father, uh, thank You for this sore message of judgment. And I know that You'd rather we be sore than be lost. And so please, strike our hearts with the renewing power of Your Holy Spirit that we might live, live in Christ our Savior. I pray that You'll do it in His name. Amen.